What our research showed is that their grievances might be expressed online, but they originate offline. Hello, folks. Uh, welcome to uh, Crossing Borders Conversations. Uh, my name is Connor, and I will be your host for today's podcast. I'm going to be uh, joined alongside here by our co-host for today, uh, Pauline. Also, um, so just a brief intro here, guys. This is the the Crossing Borders podcast, uh, basically. So uh, it's basically a podcast brought to you by an NGO uh, in Copenhagen, whose uh, I suppose our, our main aim, just in general, is to educate, to kind of you know connect and empower people across the globe to just simply become better uh, and more active citizens. Um, so, so what we're trying to do, kind of generally with with our podcast here, is we're kind of attempt, attempting to create kind of like conversation and provoke thinking around some of society's maybe more uh, important and prominent issues. Some of these maybe which are. Uh, very well known and publicized and others which aren't so uh, well known and, and publicized um, so we're going to try and do this through listening learning from other people's stories experiences um, and seeing what we can take from them uh, going into the future okay lovely guys uh, so for today's uh, topic we're going to have a quick look at uh, a little thing called hate speech uh, something which is kind of an, an issue, or I suppose, which has become uh, quite prominent in society in the last uh, few years, especially maybe with the with the rise of the internet. Um, but I suppose we kind of, when I was trying to trying to plan the plan the podcast, you know, normally with this kind of section of the podcast, you'd love to get a kind of a stat um, that can really, you know, almost hook the listener um, uh, on on the topic. But the thing with hate speech is it's actually quite hard to kind of measure. Um, so therefore it's actually really, really hard to, uh, to kind of find these kind of, uh, interesting kind of stats or, or facts on it. So this is kind of a common theme with hate speech. Not only is it hard to measure, but it's also, it's also quite hard to define, but I suppose the, the definition which we kind of go with here at, uh, crossing borders is that it's kind of any expression of discriminatory hate towards people. Now this can get a bit confusing and we'll get into it later because, everybody might have a different kind of definition of what they see as an expression of discriminatory hate towards people. What some people might see as hateful, others might see as truthful. So this can kind of get uh, really, really complicated. Uh, but I suppose before I kind of get into the, the, guts of the guts of the podcast and get to our interview today, I'm going to ask Pauline here just to jump in just for a moment uh, to tell me just a little bit about uh, the Hate Busters campaign we run here at Crossing Borders and kind of what that does. So yeah, so Hatebusters is a two-year project uh, funded by the EU and in collaboration with four other um, NGOs across Europe. And its goal basically is to help young people and youth workers to recognize hate speech and cyberbullying when they see it, so either online or offline, and, and give them tools to stand against it and stop its spread. You might wonder how we do this. Um, so we we created two guides. Uh, one is called the Hate Busters Guide. That is a very complete resource for youth workers and young um, um, activists who want to know more about hate speech, understand the root of the problem and how it can be tackled. The second is called the Lazy Person's Guide. And it's a more concise help to people who might to do something who might want to do something sorry without necessarily digging very deep into the topic and finally the last resource we've created is an app uh, with both information about hate speech and a super fun quiz 
All right, thank you, Pauline. This is a, a very, very interesting project that we're kind of, I think, very proud to be a part of here in, in Crossing Borders. But I suppose definitely off the bat there, even in the hate post campaign, we do focus quite a bit um, on the kind of cyber side of things. And today's guest um, kind of will focus in a lot on that. So it's a gentleman called Christian Mornton, and he's actually he's a specialist consultant at the Centre for Digital Youth Care. And basically what he kind of looks in, and I'll keep, keep this kind of brief enough because he's going to join us here in just a moment. Uh, but what he kind of looks into mainly is the digital sphere and particularly its impact on young people and those who are kind of insecure and vulnerable. So he kind of looks at these like destructive communities online, these kind of these kind of weird communities that you might find on, on your on your social media or even in your kind of gaming gaming cultures. And he kind of looks at that, looks at how that can lead to kind of radicalization and extremism. Um, and how basically hate speech can kind of be a massive kind of catalyst um, uh, towards this kind of destruction um, on these kind of forums or or whatever it be. Um, So without further ado, we'll kind of, we'll bring Christian in here now and hope you guys really enjoy the interview. Um, Thanks for uh, coming to speak to us today. Um, Delighted to have you you on board. Um, So um, myself and Pauline here, we're just going to ask you a few questions kind of centered around hate speech. Uh, but we kind of obviously want to retract from your study that you did for the Center for Digital Youth Care. Uh, but I suppose maybe for, for listeners who don't maybe know, could you maybe give a brief summary of what the Center for Digital Youth Care kind of does on a day-to-day basis? And then maybe if you could segue from that and give also kind of a brief summary of your uh, report in, in the Angry Internet and the findings you guys got from that. Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, the Center for Digital Youth Care is about... I think by now, like 17, 18 years old, uh, still in its teen years and started as a digital hangout, like a place that young people who maybe didn't have as many people in their physical space to hang out with could come and hang out and just like be online. And from that, it kind of grew into a knowledge center that would know stuff about young people's everyday lives online and from that kind of grew into what it was today when i got hired wow it's a long time ago um seven years ago six seven years ago i was doing stuff on gaming i was focused on gaming communities and working in explaining and doing some very basic research on why gamers such as myself would congregate online and like hang out online and talk about counter-strike instead of hanging out in their physical space and be talking about football or badminton stuff like that and the path from happy gaming communities into what I do today, which is radicalization and hate speech and digital violence, kind of started in 2014-15 with the instance of Gamergate, where back then I was a video game reviewer for a couple of Danish and European news outlets. And I reviewed the game Depression Quests. And I gave it a bad review because, objectively speaking, it's not a very good video game. And... After that review was published, I received fan mail. I received postage where people would be like, amazing. I also hate that game. Fuck that bitch. And like just leaving it all out there. And I didn't know why that was until I started Googling what is up with Depression Quest. And then I was told by the internet that Depression Quest was the center of one of the biggest digital disputes over the past decade because a woman made it. And shortly before publishing it, she had broken up with her boyfriend 
who had then said into the gaming community, into the cyberspace or cybersphere, that the only reason why the game got published was that she had cheated on him with several other dudes. And that led the full force of the internet to become very angry at not only her, but the rest of the women in gaming and in tech. And from that, I was kind of like, I need to find out why gamers are angry. Like why these online communities of men who have the coolest pastime hobby in the world, gaming, are so incredibly angry. And like that kind of led me down this six, seven year descent into the rabbit hole of angry people online. And that's where I am. Yeah, so maybe Christian, just before we get into the the real kind of nitty and gritty of the this angry internet uh, report, um, what is it exactly that kind of you and the, the Center for Digital Youth Care would kind of look to do in response to to movements like this Gamergate kind of episode or this, the, the response basically we saw to uh, this depression quest um, uh, review you get? So what I do today is usually I explain it by I try to experience the hate of the internet and then explain it, analyze it, and try to prevent it. I'm specialized on what will probably be called the manosphere, but inseldom, mentorite activism, and anti-feminist agendas that thrive online. Okay, lo- lovely Christian. So then tell me a little bit about this angry internet report um, you guys worked on. Um, you know, uh, basically, what, what did you guys find and kind of what were you, what were you looking for, basically? So we got some funding from uh, the Nordic ministries, like the Council of Nordic Ministries. And we used that to work with an analytical company called Analyse Hotel, Analytics and Numbers, um, from Copenhagen, Denmark, where we worked into building an algorithm, building a data segmentation that we could use to scrape data from three different online environments, Twitter, Reddit and 4chan, and then get a sense of how many users were talking about something that we could see was specifically Nordic, either by using Nordic language or talking about Nordic things. Like if someone is talking about um, a Danish, a minor Danish politician or a small Danish village, whilst also having a strongly anti-feminist pro-violence language, that would kind of be a good indicator of, well, here's probably one. And what we found was then that in the Nordic countries, we would find about 850 yearly authors of extremely violent anti-feminist rhetoric on these three mediums, Twitter, Reddit, and 4chan. And we used that as an offset into explaining what are they angry about, why are they angry, and what can we do to prevent this anger? Because the... It sounds kind of desensitized to say, but the problems with this anger and this online hate that we saw was, of course, it was super destructive to the men in these communities. Like we could see them talking about their lives not being worth living, that they could just self-harm, they could just lay down and rot. Uh, Suicide was a big topic always. That's one issue. Secondary issue is that even though they weren't physically attacking and being violent towards women and these women in particular, we would see them sometimes do forays or do digital attacks where they would harass women who participated in the public debate. 
And we know from secondary research, like Institute of Human Rights in Denmark, that these attacks, this harassment, will lead women, especially women and minorities, to disengage from the public debate, resulting in a less than optimal democracy, that the more we allow these communities to push out minorities and women, well, then we don't have a functioning democracy because then we don't have true representation. And lastly, there is also the danger of some of these communities getting physically violent, doing terror attacks, doing um, school shootings and like inciting riots and stuff like that. We have seen that from many of the different countries. So it was like a multi-pronged approach with several goals. Uh, yeah, I, I, honestly, I find the the kind of democratic concern point one that's that's quite kind of interesting and maybe not so obvious from the get-go. Like I think everyone who's kind of come across these kind of communities online, they just kind of think, geez, these people are for the birds, um, but we need to kind of keep an eye on them because one day they could be very, very dangerous. But you don't kind of think about the knock-on consequences for, as you say, their kind of political participation and whatnot. But I suppose kind of one thing that's quite prominent um, from, from the get-go here is that this is all done online. All these platforms are online and on the internet. I, I suppose, I, I imagine that these men existed 30, 40, 50, 5,000 years ago. So I, I'm, I'm very curious as to where did they maybe unite before that, if at all? Well, that's the thing about the internet. I like I've in all of my work and in all of my activism, I've been very pro-tech and pro-internet because the wonderful thing about the internet is that it brings everybody together. Like it can bring together activists, Black Lives Matter, Me Too, um, the Arab Spring. All of these giant happenings only happen because of internet. It's magical, but it also means that the angry man, like the prototypical angry man (parentheses trademark parentheses) and that we have had, like you say, for the past 5,000 years, he is now able to talk to the other angry men from the next village over, meaning that now we not only begin to have these progressively, um, politically progressive happenings, but we also start to see politically destructive happenings gaining traction and finding each other and inspiring each other and motivating each other. So it's like, it's a double-edged sword. And just like you say, it's not a new thing sexual frustration, uh, issues with masculinity, toxicity, men being aggressors to men, all of this, like it has been a thing forever. But like so many other things, we just see the internet sort of amplifying it. Okay, so as you said there, you know, it's kind of, it, it, is, it is a double-edged sword, uh, which means you can kind of, you can get hurt either way, I suppose. But that kind of maybe brings us to the the topic then maybe of responsibility and who, who's responsible basically to make sure that that one side of the sword uh, doesn't hurt or have dire consequences for kind of one group. Um, so I suppose there's lots of groups in regard to hate speech, in regard to these kind of uh, destructive uh, platforms on 4chan and whatnot um, that could be deemed responsible to make sure that these men aren't given that platform and that potentially that they could be punished in some circumstances. I suppose as a man who's been looking into this for quite some time, what's your kind of opinion overall on who we should trust and delegate responsibility to, to make sure that these men can't be so easily mobilized in in the future? Yeah, that is really the question, isn't it? Um, I don't know if I have the perfect answer and just like could give your phone number to someone who should be responsible for it. I know 
that when we delegate the responsibility for this problem that presents itself digitally to those that only exist digitally, to like the Facebooks, the Twitters, the 4chans, the Googles, then we don't really find a solution because what is Facebook's obligation? They are obligated to make money. They are a company. Like they are supposed to make money. They're not supposed to save the world. They are a private company. Their only obligation is to their stakeholders and sure to world peace and democracy, but that's second to the income that they can generate. And I think when I talk about these solutions, it's very important to me to remember that a lot of the research we're starting to see, for example, from Radicalization Online and Political Hostility Center at Aarhus University, those that do these things are not only this persona online, they are the same person online that they are offline. They just get a stage online to share these thoughts and have them amplified by likes and comments and shares on different media. So if we only engage with this problem or these problem doers as online personas, as user profiles on Twitter and whatnot, then we're like missing half of the point because they also exist in the physical space. And what our research showed is that their grievances might be expressed online, but they originate offline, especially the young men in the incel communities. They talk about problems they have in the physical space with women, with society, with social communities, with who they would want to be. And they talk about it online. That doesn't mean that it's an online problem. That only means that it's an online talked about problem. So when we try to delegate a sense of responsibility for solving or preventing this problem, we need to also engage those in the physical space, like pedagogues, social workers, teachers, parents, like any concerned adult around these young men also have, I don't know if I want to say a responsibility, but at least an option to also see these problems and try to catch them, try to engage with them before they snowball. We can't reduce the angry internet to just being about the internet. Sure, there are definitely some specific digital aspects of this, like the amplitude through likes, the algorithm that enforces meaningful social interactions, trademarked by Facebook, so on and so forth. Sure, that is a thing. But these factors primarily amplify existing problems. If we want to grasp this problem by its roots, we need to focus on the origin of these problems. And that is unhappy people in the physical space. Yeah, I agree that it's certainly, I think it's a multifaceted problem that almost kind of I get the what you're saying there is that almost everybody and every member and every kind of body of society has a has a responsibility I suppose if you look at it maybe more from a legal standpoint and maybe if we even drop back to your research like after after you guys finding what you found like would you have recommended to the Nordic Council of Ministers maybe to in some instances take some legal action upon some people um, who you know were overtly uh, you know, spouting hate speech online and who, who were essentially dangerous. Like, did you guys find in your studies, was there any out of the 850 people on average a year, was there anybody who was spouting some very, very dangerous stuff and who maybe you found had to be flagged maybe even? 
from the 850 we found that is a no we didn't find anyone that we felt the need to flag to authorities we have found such people but not on the year like data mine data scraped communities of twitter reddit and 4chan but one thing is definitely to educate police forces investigative forces in all the european countries to be aware of this problem and just to know that this exists i work both with um, police communities i work with psychiatric communities to know about some of the lingo and some of the language that is used in these communities so that they can take necessary precautions once such a case might be flagged but if we want to talk about legislation then knowledge is power and one thing that we have a really hard time doing right now is tracking movements across websites because data is really fucking expensive and when we try to get data we know that the data is there via facebook google internet service providers so on and so forth usually we just can't afford it so it would take something like the digital services act from the european parliament and cooperation from the european commission to make info available for ngos and universities and um, scholars before we can start providing a solution to the problem right now we have reached a in a lot of my work I talk, I talk about reaching a paradigm shift that now over the past five to ten years depending on who you ask we have proven that this problem exists now we know that there is a problem this is happening this is having an effect this is detrimental to democracy and everything we know like this is a problem all right good now we are in the paradigm of solving it and analyzing why this is a problem, which we still don't know. Because when we, when for an example, I in my work find a very active local user on a violent right-wing forum or a violent insult forum, something like that. If I could have the data to understand where he's coming from, because no one wakes up on a Tuesday morning, happy, happy, sun is shining. Uh, you have a 200-day streak going on Instagram or going on Snapchat and you have thousands of likes on Instagram. And then you're like, I'm going to become an insult. That's not how it works. This, this is the end. This is the conclusion to a very sad digital snowball. That is what we think. We can't prove it because we only have like case-by-case case data and case-by-case case proof to tell the story because the data isn't there. We can't track the data as it is right now. We can apply for it. We can buy the data. We can do all of this, but it's extremely hard. So the legislation at like a top international level, EU, like that would be a good beginning. And another thing is when we're talking about legislation is that someone can be sitting in Sweden and digitally harassing someone in Denmark. Then how do we how do we prosecute that case? Like how do we do that case? Is it then a Swedish case? Is it a Danish case? It is is it an Interpol case? How do we do that case? And right now we have legislation that is at best fifteen years old, and we have an internet that is like five minutes old. We don't always know how to legislate the internet, and I personally hate this trope of talking about the internet as the wild west like where everybody is just doing everything no like sure there's a sheriff in town problem is that he's just a privately owned company 
And a lot of the companies, if you'll grant me a couple of minutes to get all philosophical on you, most of the companies have over the past years talked a lot about free speech. We need to protect free speech. And we have seen new social media platforms forming up around the idea of free speech. If you don't have free speech on Facebook, Twitter, whatever, YouTube, then you go on to Gap or Telegram or Parler, any of these platforms that are truly free speech. I don't know if I'm a big fan of free speech. Free speech is not necessarily a good thing. It depends on the content of the speech. I would love to see some of the companies not trying to stretch the limitations of their rules in the name of quote unquote free speech, but maybe say Twitter is not a pro-free speech platform. We are a pro-democracy platform. So if you say anything anti-democratic, we will ban your ass. Sure, they would definitely have to ban a lot of people. I don't know if that's a bad thing. Like we have this, like we we barrel down on the notion of free speech because that is one of the core ideas of the internet. Yeah, but maybe we need to move on from free speech to democracy. It's this, you know, it's a par- paradox of inclusion. Am I going to include all of those people who want to exclude others? Or do I need to exclude them pre- uh, preemptively? Very, very good stuff, uh, Christian. I, I suppose as we kind of move on maybe a little bit and look forward. And I think I want to, maybe in a minute or two, uh, Pauline, might, we might even talk a little, about, a little bit about hate, the Hate Busters campaign. I might get one or two notes off you about that. But I suppose one thing I would be very intrigued about myself is, like you even said there, the internet is only five minutes old, but a lot has happened in that five minutes. Um, I'd just be very intrigued myself to see, do you see the, like that kind of hate speech space online? Do you see that evolving in any way? Over the last few years since you've been re- researching, I know, I know I found one, one interesting bit of research that looked at uh, the use of emojis within hate speech and how, you know, someone could use a monkey emoji for something very innocent and someone could use it for something very sinister. Uh, is that something you guys maybe have looked at about how hate speech is evolving or how it's always changing? Yeah, and like that's the thing, right? Hate speech has a lot to do with context. So we can't just write an algorithm that says what you can and cannot say. Like if we write an algorithm that says it will ban any user who types the phrase, you're an idiot, then we will also effectively ban kids talking to other kids about their day in school and are like, I'm so sad because my classmate told me you're an idiot in quotation marks. Like computers are incredibly smart, but only as smart as the people who write the code. And the same with emojis and memes and GIFs or GIFs, if you are so inclined. We don't always have the context. And one thing that has kind of grown exponentially over the past five years is the use of memes and GIFs to, to formulate or to present these political ideologies that are extremely destructive. And right now, we have a very high time, technically, of tracking memes or GIFs. Like, how do we do that? It's extremely hard to write and you need to take it into or out of context to to work with this set of data for an example like meme sites like uh nine gag most of what's on there is fun benign adolescent fart humor fine like you can have that but someone is also uploading 
edgy wannabe quasi Nazi stuff because it gets a laugh out of some people because that's how the teenage mind works. If we are provoked, if we are exposed to anything that's super vulgar, we laugh. It's a defense mechanism. And there's also this adolescent male idea of like, how do you persevering through vulgarities? Like we want to be the young men who have seen the wildest stuff, the craziest stuff, the raunchiest stuff, the worst stuff of the internet. How do we, how do we segment that data and that usage of maybe over-the-line harassment memes from people who will post it in a politically active forum and say, this is my true opinion about Jewish people or colored people? Or like, how do we differentiate these two? We need to ha- take into context, well, that context. I suppose maybe touching on stuff you touched on there to do with the, the power of education, we definitely found that like self-regulation could be quite a, a useful tool online and the kind of a, the idea of mindfulness. I know mindfulness sometimes can get a hard time um, and people stereotypically who may be into mindfulness can be, you know, viewed as hippie like or whatever, but more so mindfulness in, in, in the sense of like just kind of being being kind of confident and secure in yourself and to not be kind of when you see these comments or these forums online to be kind of uh, so easily swept and taken into taken into that kind of community and to be able to identify that from the start I suppose that was definitely maybe the first uh, one of the the biggest kind of uh, takeaways from the hate posters campaign um, so I'd be interested to hear maybe your thoughts on that yeah I, am, I don't think we should give mindfulness a bad reputation uh, mindfulness and meditation would be good for everybody um the problem with that is that it's a super hard sell like how do you sell mindfulness or meditation to to the target group here i really love the idea because the social resilience that would come with that perspective is exactly what we need some of these young people to have it kind of bar- um, it kind of points out the problem we have with a lot of the engagement with some of these like should we say like passive onlookers, passive bystanders, is that hate speech as a social adherence cue is very effective. If I really want to prove that I'm part of your group, I will go over, stand next to you, and then I will absolutely trash the opposite group. If I want to prove like how much I love our football team, I will talk shit about the neighboring town's football team. And we know that like that, that is the oldest page in the pedagogical book that is like bullying to belong. It, kids do it because it works. They also do it in cyberspace because it works. And the lessons of social resilience and mindfulness could really, really counter that. I think like the idea in itself is super ambitious. That's not necessarily a bad thing. It would be something that you'd have to implement institutionally. But if you could do that, like that is one of the things that could really work. Um, okay, yeah, because I suppose you talked there about, about ambition and kind of maybe we're a bit like in over our head here. So I suppose maybe to kind of to, fin- to finish up a little bit, um, I would int- be interested to hear in, in a perfect world where, you know, you could con- control 
the government, you can control your Facebook, <laughs> your Twitter, if, if you had your way kind of thing. And what, where would you go with it from now on? The, the problem is obviously it's snowballing more and more and the internet's only getting bigger every day. So on, on, a, on a practical level, if you want to tackle this in the next, let's say, five-year period, where would you be looking, like looking to straight away to, to basically get to the, the heart of the problem? All right. Well, if I try to think away from the immediate power fantasy I get about thinking that if I controlled all of that stuff, um, I, I think one of the most effective strategies would be to, to take a bystander approach. We know that a lot of this communication, a lot of the, this rhetoric is only getting traction online because people applaud it. We know from different research and different projects that if people instead take a stand against it, not just not just omit from liking it, but actively dislikes it and calls people out like, where the fuck do you get that from? Or why are you saying that? Or I disagree with that. I don't think he's a XYZ and so on. We know that if people do that, it stops the hate speech. It stops the harassment, but people need to do that. And I think like in my research, it is a lot, it has a lot to do with gender. And one of my favorite expressions from, feminist theory is to be a killjoy it's a it's a pretty tried and true feminist expression that sometimes you need to ruin the good mood the party mood to call someone out on their bullshit and women have gotten really good in that we put all of the obligation all of the um, responsibility on women to do that instead of talking about men who need to be called out on their bullshit but that being said if we could take the killjoy idea and install it in not only girls, but girls and boys from a very early age and also make it accountable online so that if you see stuff like this online, it's totally cool to ruin the good mood online, maybe in a Counter-Strike lobby, maybe on your favorite chat board, whatever, and then say, dude, no, or do that. Just to call it out and to have this, I disagree with that. I disagree with your hate. You don't need to provide a solution. You don't need to throw yourself on a grenade. You just need to say, no. I think that could be a really strong and in its core, a very democratic idea to set out on. So I don't know what I'd do with my Google or my Facebook, but if I could be, if I, if, if I could give one call out to everybody who's online today and everybody who's going to be online tomorrow, then it's totally cool to be a killjoy, like more power to you. Okay. We're going to, we're going to need to make it cool to be a killjoy. That could be definitely a, a project idea here across the borders. Um, that yeah, well, you might have to be a very good killjoy to promote it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think that kind of uh, wraps up for, uh, for the podcast here today. We want to thank you very much for just coming online and just uh, sharing your thoughts and ideas. They're really, really interesting. Um, I must say, I, I suppose, would you like to maybe uh, plug where we can kind of find a bit of your work online or your Twitter maybe or something like that? Sure, sure. And uh, I also want to plug the idea of like someone needs to make the t-shirt of uh, kill the patriarchy and the joy. Uh, I'd buy that in a heartbeat. And sure, I, I'd love to plug myself. I'm on Center for Digital Youth Care, CFDP, the DK, and on Twitter at CV Monsen, M O G E N S E N, CV Mogensen. So, like, 
looking forward to some more digital discussions. And thank you guys so much for having me and for doing the whole Hate Busters program. I'm rooting for you. Thank you, Christian. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Thank you so much. Likewise. Bye, guys. That was Christian there, I must say. You probably found him really, really interesting. I know for myself, he's just, uh, he has a bundle a bundle of information about hate speech, but I really, really liked the, the bit at the end there with the, the kind of, uh, it's important to be a killjoy. I think that was be that was definitely my biggest, uh, biggest takeaway because it's something that I think we all kind of know, but it's very hard to, it's very hard thing to do. So I thought that was actually really, 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 really interesting. And um, I, I grab in or whatever words you'd use for it, but I don't know, Pauline, do you have any main takeaways there or? I think for me as well, the main takeaway is be a killjoy. It's cool to be a killjoy, basically. <laughs> and um, mm. and let's teach ourselves and teach our kids to understand what they feel, because I think that's pretty much at the root of the problem also. If we don't understand what we feel and if we don't try to um, control our emotion, um, you know, we just leave room for lots of hate speech to be published online and just said offline. Yeah, e- easier easier said than done, though. Like I suppose I I definitely found as well. Like just the amount that there was to talk about there, kind of uh, shows in itself just how kind of complex and like multifaceted that hate speech is, and that kind of that world of hate speech. Particularly when you when you talk about it online, it just gets far more complicated because there's so many more kind of factors um, come into play. But but yeah, really interesting stuff from Christian. Thanks, Millington, for coming in there. Um, really, really interesting guy, and uh, you know, bit, a bit of a funny guy as well. Like he's able to throw in a bit of humor there, which was kind of uh, always, always nice. Um, but right, we'll wrap it up there. So for today, folks, I suppose uh, I'm going to leave a little uh, a link in our description here, anyways, uh, to find all the socials connected to the Hate Busters project on your Instagram, on Facebook, um, online. I suppose if you want to find out where to where to find us here across some borders, you can throw us a follow at crossingborders.tk on Instagram um, throw us a like on Facebook at Crossing Borders or just find us um, on Google at crossingborders.dk uh, where you can actually even sign up to be uh, a member if you want and you can become part of the Crossing Borders family you'd be absolutely uh, more than welcome uh, so thanks for listening to today guys uh, looking forward to chatting to you again um, and yeah best of luck thank you see you